morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Hear God's word for us. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here, and why don't we, now that the word has been read over us, why don't we surrender afresh through prayer before we walk through it together. Dear God, you have spoken through your witnesses, through the apostles, through the prophets, throughout many a times in history, and we thank you how this has been brought together in your word, and that even though a timely word written to various folks throughout history, it is simultaneously a timeless word for your people throughout history. And so we come trusting in the work of your spirit that you've promised to be among us when we gather in the name of Jesus. We trust that your spirit will guide us to truth that might open our eyes, that he might open our eyes more fully to the way the world is, to who you are, to who we are, and what it is indeed you are doing in and through us and around us. God, we trust you to work this morning. God, help us in any way, shape, or form in which we've come here, maybe out of some religious habit exclusively. May we instead come with anticipation of genuine relational deepening with one another and with you. This is more than something we do. You are someone to whom we belong. And we are grateful for how you love us. Thanks for loving us first and loving us always. It is in the name of Jesus we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen, amen. And there is our emergency system opening up in the back. So it's going to be a great day (laughs) when the uh, emergency system opens up there in the back. I don't know what happened there. The Spirit of God is at work. Um, And it's still going, at work. So (laughs) we've got two pastors on it, so you know know (laughs) nothing will get done. Um, (laughs) Sometimes I just feel like I'm only good for one thing, and half the time I don't know if I do that well. So um, we'll get it taken care of soon enough, I'm sure. Well, here's the deal. Uh, If you um, know anything about Christmas or you've been around in the American culture for any length of time, then there there are a few movies that kind of capture the American Christmas culture like Home Alone, right? Man, if you were a kid in the 90s, um, it's not hard for you. The moment you see that picture... To think of that iconic scene where Mrs. McAllister shouts, Kevin! Right? Like, that's just, (laughs) oh, man, it's one of my favorites. Uh, Golly, every time. Um, 
And there's just something about this movie, right? It was a blockbuster hit. Uh, it broke a ton of records on live comedy action um, and even was nominated for a global or Golden Globe, right? So pretty big deal. And the industry, knowing how much of a cash cow this baby was, they have tried to knock out as many sequels as they possibly can. You know, one, two, three. And now, some of you may know this, there's a new one out, Home Sweet Home Alone. Oh, listen to this. Listen to this. See, for me, I know I hold, I'm, I'm sure I hold a pretty unique opinion in that I actually really enjoyed this movie. My kids were rolling, laughing. We had a good time watching it. And not because there's anything unique about it, right? It's the same story, mostly. Um, here's the flow. If you've never watched Home Alone, or if you've watched one, you've seen them all. This is how it works. You know, there's a kid who's frustrated with his family, wants to be left alone, wishes that he'd be left alone. By strange circumstances, he is left alone, right? He wakes up, and then he celebrates his utter freedom and autonomy. He can finally do all that he wants with all the resources of his family at his disposal, interestingly enough. And then there's this moment where his freedom comes to grips with the reality that there are bad folks who are trying to break into his house and to take away the things that are going to sustain his freedom. But, of course, he must protect his house, right? And so he does, and he defeats the bad guys. But even after he defeats the bad folks, he comes to this realization that he hates being alone. Everything he wanted was actually terrible when he finally got it in the end of the time, at the end of the day. And then, of course, the final scene is always with Kevin embracing his parents, right? When they come home and they're finally, and listen, I don't care how many times I've watched this movie or any one of the movies, I cry. I'm like such a weeper. I like look over at Allie and I go, here I go again. You know, it does, <laughs> so without fail, I'm just a weeper at those like special moments. But here's the flow, you know, that's the flow of Home Alone. So why, why am I telling you this? So as I think about my own journey with God, and I don't know, maybe there's someone else that's here like that, like this this morning. As I think about where I fit in the Home Alone arc, <laughs> I find that at least recently, that lately, I felt more home, uh, when it comes to my relationship with God, more alone at home than in the embrace of my Heavenly Father. And it's not because God's failed me in anything. It's not because I think I failed in some significant way where it's like, Gabe, just do some soul searching. I actually believe that God's grace is sufficient enough to meet me in those spaces. I've just been in a space where I've just wanted more of him. And when you get moments where you just have sweet intimacy with him and these dynamic spaces of just feeling in a palpable way that he's with you, I've just felt more resonance even with the psalmist. You know, Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, where we read, as the deer pants, right? For flowing streams, soul pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, in this psalmist framework, there's not anything he did or she did wrong. There's nothing that's whenever we say those words that instantly communicates it's because our sin or it's because God has abandoned us. It's the idea of this longing for a deeper intimacy with God, for him to be with us. And maybe you're here and you're like that this morning. Maybe most of your material needs are met, but you have an ache. Even though you're surrounded by these wonderful people, an ache for something more. Maybe you're here and you are wrestling to meet your material needs, but you know that even if those are met, there's a deeper ache. Maybe some of you are here just exclusively because you didn't want to be alone this morning. And that's okay. There's no shame in that. I want to name that, though. That might be a reality for someone here. 
And in the midst of that eight, for every single one of us, we get a window into the human experience. And here's what we need to understand. There is a loneliness for every single human being that cannot be quieted except by God himself. There is a deep loneliness, no matter what your story is, no matter what you have, no matter what you don't have, that cannot be met, be squelched without having this experience of intimacy and connection with God himself. And I just want more of that. I want more of his presence. I mean, and that's what Advent is. We just confessed it together as we lit the Advent candle of love. We there's this deep understanding that we want God to make his home with us. It's th- this is a season of longing. This is a season of waiting. Yes, we remember that he came. But there's also the recognition that he ascended up into heaven and he's promised he's going to come again. And we want him to come again. We long for him. There should be no one in this room that says, you know what, I've got enough of God right now. Because <laughs> that particular phrase will not be fully answered until he returns. And what we see in Revelation 21, where his intimacy is so great and the mystery of this is so astounding that he himself will wipe the tears from our eyes. And he will finally and fully make his home with us and us with him. And so here we are today. We're going to continue our series looking at the different names of God. We called it He Shall Be Called. And today we're specifically looking at a really common Name of God, especially around this time of year, Emmanuel. Now, if you've ever noticed, this is just more of like Christmas trivia. You're like, sometimes it's spelled with an I, sometimes it's spelled with an E. If you're looking at the Hebrew or the Greek difference there, Emmanuel versus Emmanuel. They're even pronounced pretty much the same, just slight spelling errors. Or it's not errors, differences, um, (laughs) depending on your language kind of dynamic. But Emmanuel, God with us, this palpable, real. and, And listen, some of us just don't like the word feeling, but... This, this dynamic feeling of his presence. And even though most of us may understand, I mean, we sang it a minute ago that Emmanuel means God with us. The real question, I think, is what does it mean for God to be with us? What does that actually mean? And if he was to actually be with us, would we be ready for him? Would we be excited for his presence? Would we be excited about the consequences of his presence? And that's what I want to explore today. This particular name of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And we're going to find and explore together specifically some of the details around this in the story of an oft, I think, at least overshadowed character within the Christmas kind of season. The person of Joseph, the stepdad of Jesus, right? He's a fascinating character. And yet in his experience with God with us, think we get some deep encouragement and also some sobriety around what it means for God to actually be with us. So let's take a look together. If you haven't already, turn with me your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 is where we're going to be spending our time as you heard read. Let me go ahead and read the beginning of verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed To Joseph. Now, right out the gate, you get introduced to this pretty young couple. More than likely, Mary is in between, and this is very culturally different from us, but probably in between the ages of 12 and 14, no older than 16. And Joseph was probably in between 18 and 20. 
and they're in the midst of a betrothal. So they're not married yet, but betrothed means way more significant than what we would consider our engagement season here in the United States. Um, it's, I mean, to break a betrothal, you actually had to file for a divorce. That's how deeply enmeshed this is. And to be clear, a betrothal wasn't just two people coming together on this journey towards marriage. It was the beginnings of two families coming together. And it was more than likely arranged by Joseph and Mary's parents. I'm sure with some level of consent, but to what degree? Maybe none, but I'm sure at least a little bit. Like, you like Joseph? No. Well, okay. Well, he's gonna, you're going to marry him. Um, <coughs> but at least we talked about it. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> so you find that this couple is betrothed to one another. Another thing that's important, uh, because listen, there's all these types of rumors around all this type of stuff, is the dynamic of privacy between two betrothed individuals at this particular time and period in this particular culture. Across Judea, there was maybe some space for a couple who was betrothed to spend a very little bit of time together, alone, instead of around the family. But in Galilee, this is a, <laughs> this is a very different, the more than likely it was highly taboo for them to have any time alone together before they were actually married. So you got to understand, they haven't really spent any time outside of the oversight of others, more than likely at this point. In their relationship. And now look with me. And that's not to dictate the way we ought to do relationships. I'm just inviting you into the context of how this was happening. Okay? Just to be clear. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. All right. So straight. <laughs> we got a pretty straightforward kind of telling here of what's happening here. Mary is preggers. <coughs> and it isn't Joseph's. Uh, and what we see here in the text, there's what is so powerful is there's no sorts of details around like the sexual dynamics or details. They're just stating the facts, which I think is actually important when you compare it to other religious dynamics or other religions. But there's not a really diving into the details. Instead, what we need to know is that Joseph is not the father and that somehow the Holy Spirit has brought about this pregnancy and then I want you to just put yourself in Joseph's shoes. So she's found to be with child, and it's from the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the kind of questions you have the moment you hear this from Mary? The anger you have, the fear, the frustration, all the questions. And then in the midst of all of this, you not only have all these questions, you not only have all this, you see that somehow Joseph doesn't have anybody really to talk to about this because everybody's at risk in this conversation. And if he brings it to his parents, what would they say? And in an honor and shame culture, what parents say in that dynamic, even as an adult, has extraordinary influence in their decision-making process. So if his parents were to say one thing, it almost feels utterly culturally taboo to go against their suggestion. So where does he turn to process this news? And on top of the sense of betrayal, he probably feels in this moment, there's also the dynamic of shame that's now breaking in. In an honor-shame society, once again, it's hard for us to really get our grasp around how this would feel in this particular culture and time. To hear that the person you're betrothed to, which you're basically married but not quite married, has a child and it's not yours, would be an utter disgrace not just on you but on your family. 
And that kind of dynamic in a small town where everybody knows everybody's business has economic ramifications. Because you better believe that people are going to then start to think, oh, you know what, Joseph and Mary, they've got these dynamics going on. Joseph's raising a kid that's not his. I don't know if we're going to go to his carpentry shop to get our work done. Let's see if we can find someone else. I don't want to associate with that kind of shame, those kinds of people. These are real dynamics that are taking place within the community. We've got to really feel the weight of this story. Now, of course, Joseph knows the law. And in the Hebrew scriptures, when you go to the Old Testament, we see that there is a penalty for finding that someone had committed adultery. It is stoning them to death. And actually, this penalty extends all the way into betrothal, not just official marriage. But in the first century, under Roman occupation and Roman rule, the Jewish people had a limitation to how much they could exercise their own rules. So the only thing that he was ultimately really, I know it's not a legitimate like on paper requirement, but the cultural force was so intense that it was basically a requirement that Joseph would divorce her at the very least. And the reason he would do this is because he has compassion on his family. He doesn't want his family to now be this whole source of shame and disgrace within the community. He also wants to uphold the broader communal ethic. And so responding appropriately and even one might say biblically to that particular context to quietly go about exposing her shame would be a way of upholding the community's morals and therefore honoring God. But at the same time, he cares for Mary. It's hard for us because his identity isn't personal first, it's corporate first. And wrestling through the compassion he has for his family and the compassion he has for Mary, there's some wrestling going on here. And the text says he is a just man. So what's his plan? Look with me at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So he could still bring in one of the leaders in the community and one or two witnesses and divorce her quietly. Of course, the story would get out. Of course, the rumors would spread, but it would still minimize the damage done to to Mary and also preserve the honor of his family. I mean, who is he to believe at this moment? The Holy Spirit somehow got Mary pregnant? Has Mary been lying to me this whole time? I mean, surely God's not in this like what is what's the right thing to do in this space as i think about the dynamics of my family when i think about the dynamics of the community when i think about what god wants me to do i mean and really this outlandish story from mary that's that's what i'm supposed to be about i mean who would have ever thought that god would have in some way form be involved with this illegitimate child in the midst of this dynamic god can't be in that it's too scandalous too bizarre then there was the way that Mary looked at him and she told him what happened. I can't shake that. And, 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 and I know I'm doing a little bit of theological imagination, but the tensions here in the text, look with me at chapter 1, verse 20. We read, but as he considered these things, he's mauling them over, right? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from The Holy Spirit. I love this because he's going to bed and he can't turn his brain off. Anybody else been there? You're sitting in bed and you're like, 
she's saying one thing. I'm thinking about the dynamics of the community. I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about five years from now. I'm thinking about all the different processes. Like, what does God really want me to? But somehow Mary, Mary just, she's never been someone to lie. She's always been a person of integrity. But she's saying something crazy. How did, and just processing all of this. And then the angel, an angel comes to him in the midst of that and says, listen, listen. Joseph, don't be afraid. I want you to actually marry Mary. I want you to take her as a wife. I know this may not make sense, but you need to marry Mary. She's not lying to you. The Holy Spirit actually was involved in this. And here's what you're going to call this son. You're going to call him Jesus. You want to know why you're going to call him Jesus? Because even though this feels chaotic right now, this one who's coming, all the evil and the brokenness you experience in yourself that you see within your broader community, that you see within the world, all that that is being exercised, being brought against one another, the chaos, this one that I'm sending, he's going to save you from all your sins, all this brokenness, all this distortion. He's going to do that. Joseph, he's coming for you. Because there's no doubt when he heard Jesus, the one who's come to save his people from his sins, he sees himself in that. what that means for Joseph I want you to just think about that he has been a man of integrity he has honored Mary there's been no sexual immorality within their relationship he sought to follow the Lord in all these various details he seeks God's face he's trying to do what is just he's going through all of that and yet what the angel calls him to do is to embrace disgrace Allow the shame to fall on him and his broader family. For the rest of his life. These kinds of things, they don't die off in small towns. They grow, don't they? And he wants them to know that it'll be worth it. It's going to come with extraordinary cost. Merry Christmas, Joseph. <laughs> gift that keeps on giving and then Matthew he makes an important interjection here Matthew the gospel writer who is bringing together this account of Jesus Matthew who walked and talked with Jesus later in his public ministry saw him crucified experienced him resurrected he writes here in verses 22 and 23 all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Now, Matthew, he wants us to see, he's pointing back to an older prophecy from the prophet Isaiah from hundreds of years before this. And let me give you the long and short of where this prophecy, the context of this prophecy. In Isaiah 7, we see that the prophet Isaiah is sent to the king Ahaz of Israel, and he's making this proclamation to Ahaz that actually Assyria, this brutal opposition to Israel is going to come and he's going to demolish the nation of Israel. He's going to demolish Aram and it's all going to be done before a child is of an age of before he's grown up. He's going to do all of this. And what's the name of that child? It is to be Emmanuel, which is to be a sign that God is with them in the midst of this destruction. It is to be a sign. Emmanuel, God is with it. That's the context of Isaiah seven. Now, there's more that we could go into this particular context, but I want to highlight what Matthew is doing in highlighting this particular passage. Now, a couple things. One, this was probably Isaiah's son, 
that Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 7. But one thing we need to understand, Isaiah's children's names, they always pointed beyond them. It was never just about Isaiah's child. It was about what was going beyond Isaiah's child. Secondly, what we often see within the Old Testament prophecy is that there is a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment, a doubling up. There's a short-term fulfillment as the prophecy that Isaiah gave comes to fruition within Isaiah's time so that others recognize that God is indeed speaking through Isaiah to cultivate faith then, not just in the future. But then in the midst of that, yes, it was fulfilled in Isaiah's day, but simultaneously the richer and the fuller fulfillment does not come until later. And Matthew is identifying this Emmanuel as Jesus. God is doing something unique. His presence is felt. And even more so than just Isaiah 7, you see this Emmanuel character building across the prophecies of Isaiah such that when you get to Isaiah 9, this Emmanuel character is also called Mighty God. There's something bigger. Yes, there was something proximate, but there's something glorious that was to come. And Matthew's saying, he's here. This was him. This is a son that when he comes to age, everybody's going to say, this is God with us. You see, Matthew had recognized what those who had walked with Jesus had recognized, what Joseph was coming to see even in this experience with this angel, what Mary had been foretold, that this child was not just a mere man. Is God with us? Something truly astounding. Of course, they didn't connect all the dots just yet. But this early chaos between these two basic teenagers, Mary and Joseph, their lives wrecked. (laughs) They needed to know that God was indeed with them. Now, in one sense, God is always present with us. You know, we think about, oh, God is with us. In another sense, he's always with us because he is indeed God. There's nothing outside of his scope, nothing outside of his realm. But I appreciate the way Chrysostom, he was an early uh, theologian and pastor. He brilliantly says, admittedly, God has always been among us, but never before so openly. I love that language of openly, inviting us to see him in a new depth. So what are we to see here? in the midst of this extraordinary story of God with us, with Joseph. What we come to see is that this is what God with us means. God with us means God is for us. And that's a really important frame to kind of come to grips with. Because God, he steps into this young couple's life and he wrecks both of them. They now come with like communal shame that actually follows them the rest of their lives. There's certain dynamics where there was probably even some arguments or dynamics within their family and their broader family and how they were now situated within the community. All of that came with extraordinary cost for Joseph and for Mary. And yet in the midst of this, God is saying, but he's Jesus. You know what? I'm going to do through this one that's wrecking your life right now. And it feels very uncomfortable. It feels like God could have done a whole lot of other ways to avoid the mess. Instead, I want you to know that I'm going to be going about your salvation. I'm going to be for you. This plan that you never saw come because my ways are not your ways and your thoughts are not my thoughts. This plan is going to bring about your good. God with us means God is for us. He's for our good. He's for life and life abundantly, Jesus says, for our wholeness, our salvation, in ways that have everlasting impacts on our good beyond what we can think and imagine. 
And that's important for us to remember because if that is indeed God's goal, there are moments when he breaks in and he disrupts our comfort zones. And we find ourselves saying, God, are you really for me? (laughs) Are you really for me? I get that God with me is you being for me, but right now it feels like it's just messing with me. Like, what are you thinking? I just want peace. I just want the peace that transcends all understanding. I just want shalom. And God's like, I'm going to get there. I got to tear down some stuff first. I got to mess with some things first. If you really want life that's abundant and not just life that's survival, sometimes I got to tear down some idols. Sometimes I got to mess up what you were finding your comfort in that was anything but me. And I want you to think about this for, for Joseph, right? How much this cost him? I mean, think about God with us. Was that good news for him at first? He's like, oh, Mary's pregnant. God with us. Awesome. No, he was like, what is this? This feels like a sucker punch. It feels unfair. And then God calls him to do something that by all accounts is crazy. Once again, in his cultural context, stay with her. That feels illogical, both in family dynamics. It feels unfair by some accounts. It feels crazy. And it comes with extraordinary cost. And so, of course, he needed to hear that Mary was innocent. Of course, he needed to hear that somehow the Holy Spirit was uniquely at work in Mary's womb. Of course, he needed to hear all of that, but he needed to hear that the child's name would be Jesus. None of these words from the angel are wasted. He needed to hear. Jesus is the Greek word for the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. He needed to hear that that's the name of the child that's messing up his life right now. He needed to understand that God's broad agenda, his goal, was his salvation, his wholeness. God with us means God is for us. And I'm going to be honest, maybe somebody needs to hear that in here. That's, that's news we have to declare to our hearts sometimes. It's more of a headline to an article in our lives that has yet to, been, to be written, right? God with us means he's for us right now. I don't know how you're writing this story, God. <laughs> right now, this does not feel like the headline that's matching the story that's being written. But this is the message we have to proclaim to ourselves. This is the message that the angel said Joseph needs to proclaim to himself in the midst of his chaos. Listen, listen, Joseph, you're going to take Mary, and it doesn't feel very logical right now. It doesn't feel very fair, but I'm for you. This is the ultimate goal. That's what this child's coming for. Believe, stick with me. And it's only when we believe that headline will we have the strength to endure when it feels unfair or illogical. And Joseph's response is really the standard for us in the midst of mystery. Look with me again at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, (laughs) he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now listen to this. This is important. And he called his name Jesus. You see, what Joseph does is what you and I are called to do. We're called to choose to stay with the God who is for us. You see, Joseph, he had a choice. He wasn't a robot. 
Sometimes we can read these biblical characters and be like, well, of course. No, he had a choice. He could have said this was too hard. This was too messy. It's not going to be worth the cost that it's going to bring to my family, to my extended family, to the community. I'm out. Use someone else, Lord. He had every choice here within the text. But he stays. And he chooses Mary. And he does not choose the path of least resistance. What goes even fast, it's even more fascinating for me, is that, I mean, this, this bro is like an example of sexual purity. I'm just going to throw that out there. That's not to cultivate shame for anybody, but it sure does give us a great example. I mean, the dude knows it's not his kid. There's one way you can really be sure that's not your kid. Then he gets married. <coughs> then he gets married, and he doesn't consummate the marriage. Do you see that? He's laying down next to her. You know, every night, and it's not consummating the marriage, protecting her and protecting the dynamic of the child. I mean, he goes the extra mile. And then on top of that, this bro, <laughs> like if you look in Matthew 2, I had somebody walking me through this the other day, and I'd just forgotten. Like, this isn't the only time the angel shows up to Joseph, right? He's there in Bethlehem, and the angel's like, hey, Herod the king wants to kill y'all. <coughs> So I know, like, choosing Mary was, like, one step, but I got another one for you. You're going to Egypt. I've got the, pl- you know, I got the, pl- the flights are booked, ready to go. And so then he went to Egypt as a refugee with his wife and child for a couple years. And then the angel comes to him again. He's like, it's time to go home, Joseph. He's like, man, I had a job. You know, what are you thinking? Like, all the different- okay, it's time to go back. So he starts to go back, and then the angel stops. He's like, oh, no, it's still not safe, though. Like, you need to go to Galilee. He's like, okay, we're going there. But each time the angel shows up, there's any moment. In each one of those moments, he'd be like, okay, I signed up for this, but I didn't also sign up for this. It's like the angel didn't give him the whole story. He's like, you say yes to Mary, you're also saying yes to Egypt. You know, like, oh, okay. <laughs> Behind curtain number two. Uh. But he keeps staying. He chooses to stay with the God who is forced, even though it just continues to mess up his plans. Let me ask you, where are you tempted to walk away from God? The God who's with us that sometimes wrecks our lives, <laughs> but holding on that he's for us. Maybe you're here today and you're tired, right? You've been, you've been walking with Jesus and you're asking these questions, but man, there are paths that are pretty well celebrated in our American culture. And they're promising these pseudo wholenesses, these these quasi-comforts that if you just take this path, which is going to cause you to walk away from the messiness of what God has actually called you to be a part of, sometimes the, the cost that comes with walking with Jesus and picking up our cross and following him, which is not just a metaphor, like there is significant pain when you follow Jesus. So if your life is really comfortable, we got to ask that question, hey, where am I missing what God's calling me to? Because listen, there's no cultural context or time where the life and following of Jesus is easy. In one sense, his yoke is easy, but it's in comparison to the other yokes. And frankly, there might even be family dynamics. Or you have family who may even be considered Christians, but they've enmeshed so much with the world's values and how things are done or particular priorities that standing with Jesus' priorities comes with a cost or even a family shame or family dynamics. Maybe you're here. And you're looking for God to call you to release, but in reality, he's not calling you to release. He's calling you to endure, to stay with him in the mess, 
just like Joseph, to keep walking, to keep going with him where he calls you. Because wherever he is, that's best. Not safety, not reaching your financial goals, not accomplishing your professional dreams. Those may come, but those aren't the determiners as to where God is. Where God is is where you want to be, even if it costs you some of these other things. Where are you tempted to walk away from God? This morning, Joseph's story, it's a reminder to not walk away. Choose to stay with the God who's for us. Now, I know this feels like a really logical space, like we do often at Christmas, to jump from the manger to the cross, and we'll get there. Because it's beautiful, it's powerful, that that is a palpable, and it's an essential place we must go. You can't just stop at the manger and just look at his life. You have to get to his death. But before that, I want to think about Joseph just a little bit more. Because by all accounts, as far as we can tell, Joseph wasn't alive during Jesus' public ministry. He definitely wasn't around during Jesus' death because Mary's by herself. And Jesus looks at one of the other apostles, the one who's deeply beloved, John, and says, why don't you now look at your mother, mother, look at your son. Where's Joseph? He's nowhere to be found. And yet what I think is so fascinating is to think about Joseph experiencing God in a powerfully intimate way. Of course, he got like one glimpse. We see this in the gospel account of Luke. I mean, Joseph was a really religious, devout dude. Like he goes to Jerusalem every year for the festival. He's dragging his kids. He's dragging, you know, like every, and Mary's probably a step ahead of him because she was also really devout. So like together, they're just like, we're going to Jerusalem. Like get your stuff together. Mom, I just want to stay in Galilee. We're going to Jerusalem. You know, like, so they're going and they're with the family. And then suddenly like they're at Jerusalem for the festivals and then they leave and it feels like a home alone situation because they left Jesus in Jerusalem. <laughs> it all comes back to home alone. That's your big idea. And then suddenly they go back and Joseph's like, man, what's up? And he's like, I had to, you didn't expect me to be with my father? Imagine that as a stepdad. Once again, just think about these dynamics. But all the questions wrestling through his mind, the intimations as to who he was to be, the promises he heard, but he never saw him fully come out in Cana where he does his first miracle. He never sees what actually that means. Just think about that. But I, but I can't help but think about Joseph in those average everyday moments. He's kind of hidden. Joseph is hidden with Jesus in the hidden part of Jesus' life for multi- multitude of those years. And he's, he's with Jesus, teaching him his craft, right? Whether it's a stonemason or a carpenter, there are debates around how you interpret that particular vocational thread. But either way, standing next to Jesus, showing him the way on how to do this work, and every now and then looking over, and in the eyes of Jesus, Jesus was always fully God and fully man, and looking into his eyes and saying, that's the one. This intimacy, this beauty of being so close to Jesus when the rest of the world doesn't even know yet. And Joseph's holding on to the promises that he gets to raise the Son of God. He gets to walk him through the dynamics and teach him things about life. And holding on to hope and promise that this Jesus really will save them all. He doesn't know how. And here's what's fascinating, right? Because then he dies by all historical accounts or traditions. And he dies still hoping for more. 
He doesn't even get the glimpse of what we get to see. He doesn't know what we know. He doesn't get to hear about the miracles of that, that Jesus did and how he was baptized and how the Spirit came down and the Father said, this is my Son whom I deeply love and am well pleased with. He didn't get to see all of that. He didn't get to see Jesus' public death and the shame where he stripped naked outside of the temple gates or outside of the city gates. He doesn't get to see any of that. And he doesn't get to hear and experience the renown of his resurrection. None of that. But he held on to what the angel told him about who Jesus is. You see, Christmas, it isn't a time to say that everything's okay. Because it's not. And that's okay. <laughs> it's a time of longing. And Joseph understood that the best place to be is not out of the mess. The best place is to be is where God is, even if it's extremely messy. Because he is the reward. And one day, he will be fully with us. And he will make heaven and earth together one. And I'll look at Allie, I'm sure. And I'll say, I'm doing it again. <laughs> if I'll even be able to look away. He's coming. In one sense, he's here, but in another sense, it's okay to long for more. May we together say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, be Emmanuel with us. Let's pray. Let's pray. Amidst, God, all the, the fanfare, the beauty, the cheer, the bows, the, the trees, and all that other dynamics, God, which I honestly just love. You know my heart. I love me some Christmas. But in the midst of that, God, may, may we never confuse what this season is about. It is both a time of remembering that you came, a recognition that your spirit is here, but even your spirit groans, as we see in Romans 8, for you to finally reveal the sons of God and finally come and make all wrongs right. There's a longing for more of you. For you to return and to finally establish into full all of your promises. Until then, God, may you give us the resolve to stay with you. To hold fast to you with us and for us. Even as the story continues to be written. We trust you in this time. And where we don't, bolster our trust in a way that only your spirit can. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, amen, amen.